thanks for tuning in to the WPS Remix Edition of the Enhance Your Practice Podcast, brought to you by the ASPS Women Plastic Surgeons Forum. We hope you enjoyed our coverage of the WPS Symposium and gained valuable insights from our guests. Remember to subscribe to our podcast, check out our other episodes on your preferred platform, or download them directly from ASPS Ednet. Stay tuned for more exciting updates and expert advice to help I'm you so enhance your I'm so excited to be here on our office management panel to talk with all these amazing women about their different practice styles. Uh, my name as your host is Dr. Ashley Amalfi. I'm a board certified plastic surgeon in Rochester, New York. Um, and excited to engage in these conversations because I started in academics at the University of Rochester and then have transitioned to a group practice um, at the Quetella Center for Plastic Surgery. Today, I am joined by Dr. Vinaya Redman to discuss um, her practice style, which is a pretty large group practice. And uh, she gave an amazing presentation here at the WPS Symposium. And so we are so excited to welcome her. So will you just start, Dr. Redman, with your credentials? Okay, uh, well, my name is is Vinaya Rednam. I'm a board-certified plastic surgeon, and I practice in Houston, Texas. Um, and I am part of a, what I would categorize as a large group practice. Um, we are a practice that is made up of both cosmetic and reconstructive surgeons, and many people do both in the practice. Um, I'm in my eighth year of employment after my training, um, and I was really excited to talk about this uh, topic in particular just because it was something that I never thought I actually would enjoy as yeah. being part of a surgery. Yeah. Um, I, I very much remember joining practice and being excited about the job aspect of it and thinking I know nothing about business and yeah. this is going to be terrible. And on the flip side, it's actually been amazing. Like yeah. I really realized that I not only enjoy it, but want to be one of the leaders in my group for really figuring out how to do things well and to really build something that I feel like is our legacy yeah. as a group. So is that kind of the best part of it for you is like the leadership potential and sort of that aspect of control over kind of all the facets of your practice? Yeah, I guess so. I really do like it. I like um, I, I like being able to bring everyone together and I like seeing what we've created mm -hmm. um, because I do feel that uh, having a group and all of our minds together that we've been able to provide a level of care that I don't think I could just done on my own. Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes the details, you know, when you're a small team, it's so hard to cater to those details. And when you have bigger people and people focusing on all the smaller things, it's sort of such a more cohesive experience for the patient. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I, a lot of times when I talk to patients, I always say we, 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 and, and, you know, I'm referring to my, my team, my staff team, but I, a lot of times it's just because that's how I think. I always yeah. think of us like the group. It's always a we. Oh, that's such a great, that's such a great thing to say. And I mean, obviously there's challenges to working in a big group too, and we can talk more about um, both, but you know, what would you say are some of the challenges for someone who's looking at joining a group practice? Um, I think first and foremost, the biggest challenge is giving up a little bit of your own independence as a surgeon. Uh, we're all pretty fiercely independent. We all have strong ideas and uh, ways that we want to achieve them. Um, so there is a little bit of giving up, um, not giving up. That's not the right word. It's more of a compromise, a, yeah. like, like, like a marriage. Um, whether you're an associate in a group or a partner group, there is there is an element of a relationship between you and your other surgeons in the practice. Um, and I think that that's the, the hardest thing. But if you can get past that and you realize that there's so many more positives yeah. um, for the small amount of your maybe independence you're giving up, I think it's definitely worthwhile. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and 
when you were thinking about going into practice, how did you like arrive at this situation? Like, were you thinking of going solo? How did you find the group? How did you, um, because you right out of the gate landed in a really awesome spot and that's not always the case for everyone. So how did you get to where you are? Right. I, yeah, this has been my practice from day one. Yeah. So I've been very, very lucky Which with is that. not typical. It is not typical <laughs> at all. I think there's a pretty good percentage of people who don't stay at their first practice. Um, I knew what I wanted. Um, solo was never in my mindset. Um, partially, again, because I wasn't quite ready to accept the business aspect of it. Yeah. Um, I really just wanted to get there. I wanted to collect my cases. Yeah. Um, and I just wanted to start building a practice. I just wasn't really sure what that was going to be yet. Um, so I knew what city I wanted to be. In. So I started Googling plastic surgeons in Houston yeah. and I just started looking. Um, I looked at a lot of people's websites. Um, social media wasn't quite what it is now. Yeah. Um, so it was just coming up then. So it really wasn't as much for me to learn about people that way. But I just, I looked on their websites and I, I kept looking for people who seemed to have um, a similar idea of what they wanted for their practices from their websites. And that's how I found it. And I started writing letters. Yeah. I wrote letters to everybody and anybody who interested means that I'm coming to Houston, um, I'm looking for a job, and yeah. I want to be part of your team. So they weren't necessarily even advertising a job. You no. were just like kind of cold calling places. I, I just cold called. I, yeah. knew, I knew some people might throw that letter right away, and I knew yeah. that other people would open it up and give me a call, and I did. I got lots of calls when I told people I'm coming. Whether or not you give me a job, I'm coming. Yeah, yeah. I did that too. I made a lot of phone calls, and I'm not sure I got any, <laughs> <laughs> any back, but I think that's like good advice, especially like in this group setting, because I I think, you know, like we got cold called by someone who really wants to move back to Rochester. And so we're always sort of entertaining those ideas. So for anyone in practice or going out there, it's always okay to just call and ask. And maybe if you don't get an answer, maybe what I did wrong is I was probably talking to the wrong person because I was just literally calling on the phone and Lord knows who I was actually talking to and how that message was actually portrayed. But, you know, reach out to the docs if that's something you're interested in, because groups, I think, are always looking to grow. Because exactly that, This, even though we weren't a big group at that time, they were looking for someone yeah. that just weren't advertising. Yeah, so exactly. So it was like, okay, so now they knew I was Perfect, perfect. And then, you know, when you join a group, there's like so much to learn. And I felt like for me, that learning curve was so steep, especially learning about the business side of things um like because when you walk in like i didn't even know like what all these acronyms mean i didn't know how to look at a profits and loss statement and so how has that growth of the business learning curve been for you in a group setting um it's been good but it's largely because um the senior partner in my practice wants to cultivate that in all of us yeah he's always been very open about wanting to make us better business people um and so it just came down to if i wanted to learn i just had to sit with him and he wanted to explain he wanted us to have as good an understanding um which i think was important and he instilled that in me so when we bring new people on i want to make sure that they understand what's going on too because i had a good mentor yeah that's awesome that you kind of pay it back i think that's super important and i think it's something we don't really think about in a group setting or in private practice. I was looking for mentors in academic practice and I didn't have them. And I found them in my senior partners, which I was, it was just totally unexpected for me and really cool. And I was learning things that I like actually wanted to learn, like the business side of it, like you. Um, and, and if you could say like, looking back, is there anything that you like regret or you would do differently um, that, you know, you've learned in your experience so far? 
Um, looking back, um, I don't know if it's regret, but I wish I had delved into the business aspects sooner. Sure. I wish that I had um, familiarized myself with it more. I think, you know, when you're first out, you're so focused on collecting for your cases. Yeah. You just don't really think about those things. But I think that if I had thought about them earlier, that I'd be, I feel like I'd be even better positioned than I am yeah. right now. I think you're still ahead of the game. So <laughs> I think you're doing great. And then lastly, you know, for anyone who is either junior out there and looking to start um, or join a practice or who is in a practice that they're unhappy with and looking at a group practice, what kind of advice uh, do you have for someone who's looking at that um, type of model? I'd say just kind of almost what I did is start looking, targeting kind of places that you think you could see yourself at. Yeah. Um, most big groups are not going to really advertise because like you said, both the practices we're in, we're, we're always kind of open to things. Yeah. Um, so go meet them, um, go visit places, actually spend some time. It is not enough just to talk to somebody on the phone. You have to go there. You have to talk to their staff. You yeah. have to talk to everybody to yeah. get a good idea. That's great advice. Well, thank you so much. It was an amazing panel and we're so grateful for all the pearls you shared with us. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Dr. Rednam. Um, so we are so excited to have our next panelist who has an academic practice, Dr. Amber Lease, and I'm going to let her tell you guys a little bit more about her practice and herself. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I am a board certified plastic surgeon, but I have a subspecialty certification in hand surgery as well. And I serve as the residency program director for the plastic surgery residency at University of California, Irvine. I have a practice that is mostly focused on congenital hand and peripheral nerve, but I do dabble in a lot of different parts of plastics just by virtue of being in an academic mm -hmm. setting. Awesome. I mean, you are just like so involved and I see you everywhere, all over social media, all over meetings, all over academia. Give us an idea of what that looks like for you in a typical week. The week can be a lot of different places. And part of that is just because our academic setting covers a VA hospital and a children's hospital as well. And so my time has to be a little bit divided among those sites. So I might spend a Monday at the main hospital doing clinic and doing some educational work. And then on Tuesday and Thursday, I'll be operating either between the children's hospital or the adult hospital, just depending on what's been scheduled. Wednesday, I have clinic at the children's hospital and Friday, I see patients at the VA. And in spots in between there, I will have time with the residents for education or time mm -hmm. with the medical students for teaching. Great. And so how much like administrative stuff do you have to do? I mean, I know you have that part as the program director, but when it comes to like running your practice, and and that kind of data are, are you involved in that at all and how do you feel about that that is one of the things that you kind of in this give and take of different practice models give up a lot of control over in an academic setting and for me that works wonderfully because mm -hmm. I don't have a lot of control over the day-to-day -day running of the practice we have a faculty meeting every month where we'll sit down and we'll look at the metrics of the practice and just kind of like how clinic volumes are and how the health of the department is but when it comes to like hiring and firing staff mm -hmm. or things like that I have like zero say like do I control the block time at the OR no I do not um, and that's something that I enjoy because my mind share is better focused in other places for just my personality yeah. type. I, I think I would probably lose my mind if I were in charge of that <laughs> other stuff. I mean, and I think that's why it's so cool that there's so many options when it comes to plastic surgery because it all kind of suits our needs and our strengths. And it seems like it's obviously a model that really supports, you know, you for the best that you can be as a physician. What would you say are kind of the top positives and negatives to being in an academic practice? 
I think the things I like the most are being connected to education, and that's a combination mm-hmm. of connecting to residents and trainees, uh, and that's you know, medical students that you're mentoring. I feel like those relationships really uh, feed my soul, if sure. you will. Um, I think being with the team, so having a lot of other people in practice doing different things to kind of keep me current on a lot of different information and advancements in our field always feels really exciting, and I like being kept on my toes by the residents yeah. who are asking questions about yeah. what I do and why. Uh, the downsides are that lack of control and that lack of say over how my time is spent or how the clinic runs or things like that. You give up a lot of control in order to have those other positives. Yeah, absolutely. So when you're thinking about going into practice, especially academic practice, you know, initially when I went into academic practice, I felt like I already knew that model because I had trained it obviously in academics and we all do. I, I was just so blown away of, about how different that is as a student and a trainee and then as faculty. And so I just wonder what that transition was like for you because you've really made it work. Thank you. Yeah, that's a, it's a really important point. I think we do a poor job of educating our residents about what um, different practice models look like. Mm -hmm. And the truth is that 90% of them will end up in some kind of group or private practice. And so we really do an especially poor job preparing them for that because most of what they've been exposed to is an academic setting and their experience in academic setting is really focused on like the call burden and a lot of, a lot of work and patient care, which gets lifted a little bit when you get into the faculty positions. And so for me, it's, um, I mean, like the reason I ended up there, the kind of like thing that drove me to that space was that I really loved the teaching and the cases that I wanted to do could really only be done in an academic right. center. Like pediatric hand surgery is just not profitable. Yeah. I can't do that in, in like private yeah. practice. Um, but trying to show my residents that I have control over my schedule to be able to go on vacation or take time to take care of sick family members has been really important uh, and, and helping to kind of elevate the like, you know, there's parts of your life that you get back. You give up a lot of control in like the running of your practice, but you get a lot of control in the running of your life. I think that's the thing they don't necessarily see as much. I think it's so important that you said that, that we like kind of make it visible that we are people too and that we have personal needs. And I remember one of my attendings in training used to put her family member's birthday on the schedule. So when I was looking at the schedule, I knew that that was an important day, but equally I was paying attention to the fact that she was taking a half day and like those little things I think are so meaningful. And so I think it's so important to have a woman in academics who's really doing that in teaching. My last question for you is really just that, you know, we hear of so many women who go into academics and then for those personal and balanced reasons, uh, they leave. And so that's certainly a leaky pipeline. What kind of advice do you have for someone who really wants to pursue an academic career that would help them be successful in that path? That is such a good question and such an important topic. I think the um, the best thing to prepare for is just really having a clear visibility about what the practice like pros and cons are. And so really knowing that for you yourself, the things that you're looking for are only met in an academic practice mm-hmm. because otherwise all those other things that you give up control over become like reasons to burn out and yeah. really kind of like hurt your soul. And it's you know better for all of us if we're not hurting each other spiritually you know, in order to figure out where we're supposed to be in life. 
So I think having some mentorship and guidance, talking to some people in different practice settings and really finding out what they like. And then if you know that you want academics, choosing that in a way where you're sitting down, like you know who the cheer person is, you know what their personality type is like, you know what kind of tone they're setting for the department, and you have really, really good visibility into what the finances of your practice look like, even in academics, like how much you'll be charged for overhead, how much you're going to get paid for call, what the bonus structure looks like, how you get bonus and how you earn those bonuses, what the expectations of you are in order to earn your salary, really having a clear sense of what they are going to demand of you in order for you to be successful there, I think it's going to be key. And then just looking at the group that you're with, because those people become your work family. And, you know, it's like there's lots of different family personalities in the world. You want the one that meshes yeah, well with you. Absolutely. I think that mentor thing is so important because you sometimes don't have all that information. Sometimes the facade that's put on is not actually what the yes. actual um, the culture is of that place you're going to. So I think it's so important to reach out to people, to colleagues, to faculty that you've uh, been with in your passing, just, you know, to get the lay of the land and make sure it's going to be a really good fit for you. Yes. So, thank Do you. that due diligence. <laughs> so thank you so much for all of your knowledge and advice. It was an amazing talk and we appreciate you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a pleasure to be here. Thank you. I am now so excited to introduce our third panelist, Dr. Renee Burke. Dr. Burke, will you just give us a little idea about you, your credentials, and what your practice type is like? So I'm a board-certified plastic surgeon. I'm just outside of uh, Chicago in Barrington, Illinois. And I did uh, the traditional general surgery training, followed by uh, two years at that time, which was all that was required at uh, Vanderbilt for um, my plastics fellowship. I did a craniofacial fellowship oh, wow. with Tony Wolf in Miami and um, a cosmetic fellowship with Mark Codner. You know, my original intention was to join a uh, craniofacial surgeon out west. So that was that was the impetus, but I kind of uh, took a whole U-turn uh, when the economy turned down and most of his practice was um, transgender-based and, um, and it was out-of-pocket revenue. And at that time, you know, the economy is not good and he couldn't bring on a partner. So I ended up uh, going up to Chicago, joining a small group for two years and then um, just deciding, you know, I, I wanted to really start building the brand and the vision that represented me. And I didn't yeah. feel like that group was doing it at the time. Yeah. I mean, I, I hear a lot of people who... I guess that the commonality of most of us is that we start in some type of practice and then we transition to something else. I've heard like statistics like 80% or something. Um, so very few of us kind of get it right the first time, but I don't think that's always bad. You know, like I hear no. people talk poorly about these transitions, but for me, I feel like if I didn't have my experience in academics at first, I don't think I would know or appreciate what I have now in my group practice. Did you have the same feelings about your transitions? Yeah, and I think that, you know, you, there's positive and negatives to take from each uh, scenario that you're involved in, is that you can, you absolutely learn um, what you, what brings you happiness when you're not happy, you know? Mm -hmm. And there, and you have yeah. to know what you don't like, you know, about a practice to maybe ensure that you don't uh, bring that into your new practice. So, you know, for two years, having two partners might my first two years out of practice, I'll, I'll say it wasn't awful to have senior people to bounce ideas off of. You know, it was a really comfortable position to be in. It was just that, you know, my the senior partner, when I told them that I thought we should put 
um, an ad in this in this magazine that goes out to all the homes in this certain zip code. It wasn't much money. His response was, no, I'm already advertising the yellow pages. And I realized that I'm like, you know, we're just at two different points yeah. in our practice and where we want to put our money and our time. And, you know, that was, that was just sort of where... I don't think it left, I left on the worst terms at all, um, but it was just, I wasn't working, you know, towards towards my own vision. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, if you're not aligned and those core values aren't the same and you don't want that experience, you know, what you envision the patient experience to be different, it's just never. No, I think half the people work. listening to this don't even know what the yellow pages yeah. are, you yeah. know. But I mean, I think that you also have to just, um, start to see early too like, like I mean I, I talked about the fact that if you don't feel comfortable driving into work if you're not excited to be there you know if the staff isn't treating your patients the way you want them to and it's not you don't have enough say eventually yeah. it's just not going to work and before it blows up start thinking about your exit strategy and how to do it you know in the most painless way possible yeah i think that's really a great thing because nothing is ever you know perfect and always going to work out and so i think you should always be thinking of like what if right yeah absolutely you know i think there's probably a lot of people who are this is really resonating with and they're in a practice that's not fulfilling their needs and they're thinking about leaving and going solo, but the reality is that is so scary. And I was wondering if you could speak to what that's like to actually make that jump. How, how fearful were you? What were your biggest concerns? And then how were you able to overcome that? Well, it is really scary because you have to initially just think, I mean, everything in the beginning is money. What can I afford? Mm -hmm. What can I do? Um, you know, and, and most people aren't having this huge thriving cosmetic practice when they leave and mm -hmm. or they go into solo practice so you know you're really looking at not overextending yourself but how do you give yourself for example enough space square footage to expand if you want you right. know and how do you do this and there were definitely some lean years you know those, those first couple years out i remember talking to my friends in academic and and, and it was embarrassing how much more they were making you know than <laughs> yeah. i was making um but i was building something and you know it's good to have you have got to have a business advisor somebody you know with an md somebody look at your numbers who actually will tell you you need to make some cutbacks here because you know this isn't the right direction or here's where we should be growing or right. look at this you know you have to have some help there and it's it is a gradual progression you know it doesn't but you start you also start learning as you get busier where do you take off the things that are the biggest time sinks and the least revenue generating you yeah. know if yeah. it was private practice that's insurance based yeah work. yeah you, you just have to start to work smarter and those are things yes. that you don't think about in other models and sometimes yeah. are hard conversations to have i think the best way i ever heard it put was a no thank you list so dr <laughs> ashley ashley gordon told me you know you're at this tipping point you need to create a no thank you list yeah. and start realizing you know what is it that's going to be useful for you to grow and, and what is really holding you back and sometimes those are hard those are hard jumps to oh, make. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's so funny. I was just telling someone my my one of my favorite quotes from actually is that the, the grass is not greener on the other side, it's just a different shade of yeah. brown. Where do we want to live? <laughs> Which brown side do we want to live on? You know, and it's so it's so true because uh, you know the the hard part too is as you are um, expanding and growing, 
you are always thinking in the back of your head, okay, now how do I maintain? Yeah. You know, I have to grow, I have to maintain, I have to grow, I have to maintain. And, and it is a constant, you know, when I heard the discussions, like on academic practice, they don't have to go home and check their competitors' uh, Google sites yeah. or see who's getting good yeah. ratings or see who's, you know, looking looking at all of this. So it's, it's a give and a take. Yeah, it's a different level of anxiety and control, mm-hmm. and that comes with its own. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> positives and negatives. And I think w- what we've kind of been hearing today in this panel is it really just you have to decide what's important to you, what's your goals, what's going to make you happy. And sometimes I think you have to just like you said, figure out what doesn't make you happy to help make that picture just a little bit clearer. Right. And the more people that you can bring on that that can help alleviate some of that burden, like a practice consultant, yeah. you know, um, I mean, once I was able to, you know, make that work into my practice it just takes a huge yeah. stressor off yeah. you know and then that way i can just come in and operate i can really just work four and a half days a week and not not just stay all night yeah. doing the admin things if you could look back i mean you have built this beautiful and successful practice if you could look back and give yourself advice when you were first making that jump and first starting out uh, what would that be? I think the advice was, yes, you can. Yeah. Yes, you can. You can do this. But um, a couple of the, I think, you know, I talked in, in in my lecture a little bit about some of the biggest mistakes I made too was yeah. don't overextend. Like know what your practice is now. You know, keep on brand. You can be the classiest reconstructive surgeon out there, absolutely. And as you transition, if your goal is to be cosmetic, you can keep that same level, that brand, that same level of class. But know that if you are right now a reconstructive surgeon, don't get sucked into buying that huge expensive device until you're really ready for it, you know? I mean, that's the hardest part is, um, you you have to really look at the reality of your situation now, you know? Understand what you can acquire because trust is built it takes a long time you know for for in a community for people to get to know you people to trust you and so when you go and you buy these big expensive devices and things why does somebody trust a new office that has that why not start small and just keep being the best you and showing up and representing yourself in the best way possible. That's great advice. Honesty and patience. Yes, so true. (laughs) So true. Well, thank you so much. Your talk was amazing. I think this is so helpful for anyone who's either, you know, deciding what to practice to pursue or looking to switch practices. And um, so we're so grateful for you and all your wisdom and your success. If I I can say one thing I said in my talk, and I just love this, is that, you know, make sure you build your dream. Do not let someone hire you to build their dream. Okay? Last final word. <laughs> Sorry. Thank you so much. All That's right. a pretty good way to end. And thank you so much to our amazing panelists. Thanks for tuning in to the WPS Remix Edition of the Enhance Your Practice podcast, brought to you by the ASPS Women Plastic Surgeons Forum. We hope you enjoyed our coverage of the WPS Symposium and gain valuable insights from our guests. Remember to subscribe to our podcast, check out our other episodes on your preferred platform, or download them directly from ASPS Ednet. Stay tuned for more exciting updates and expert advice to help you enhance your practice.